Did you know that there's a book of the Bible so important that Anglican clergy were required to read through it 12 times a year? What do you suppose that book would be? Maybe you'd think it's one of the Gospels, maybe Matthew or John. You know, these books tell us about the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord, but it's not one of the Gospels. Or you might think it's one of the New Testament epistles, like perhaps Romans, this mountaintop of Pauline theology. But no, it's not one of the New Testament letters either. In fact, it's the Old Testament book of Psalms, which Dietrich Bonhoeffer referred to as the prayer book of the Bible. This is the single most utilized book in the worship of God by both Jews and Christians. Since the reign of King David, the Psalter has formed the meat and potatoes of the prayer life of God's people. The Jews would sing these songs in their pilgrimages to Jerusalem, in their offerings at the temple, in their prayers at the synagogue, and as a part of their own daily prayers. Later on, the Christians would recite these psalms in church, and the monks would pray them out there in the desert and in their monasteries. And believe it or not, some of the desert fathers would actually pray through all 150 in a single day. And the way that they would keep track of their progress during this long ordeal was with 150 little pebbles, which were the precursors to our modern prayer beads. Even today, if you look in the prayer book, you'll find the entire book of Psalms reproduced and broken down into a 30-day cycle. The church has given this book of the Bible a lot of airtime, or should I say prayer time. And why is this? Because in the Psalms, God has given His people an incredible gift. This is what I want to explore with you this morning, how the Psalms give us words to pray back to God, words to unite us to Jesus, and words to encourage us in our life's journey. Psalm 30, our psalm this morning, gives us a beautiful opportunity to learn these things for ourselves and to realize that there is more to the book of Psalms than what meets the eye. First, in the Psalms, God has provided for us an offering to give back to Him. As the father and son were hiking up Mount Moriah to offer sacrifice, the boy Isaac asked his father, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham turned to him and said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. After Isaac's life was spared, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and saw behind him a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. On that day, God showed his people that he himself provides the offering. So for this reason, in all our services, when the priest blesses the people's tithes, he says, All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. God gives to us what He wants to receive back from us. And so it would be like if you were to give your child money to buy you a birthday gift. That's how it is with God. He Himself provides the offering. And do you know where else this is true? It's true in the life of prayer. For in the book of Psalms, God has given us, His people, words with which to praise and supplicate Him, words with which to bring our whole emotional experience into the divine relationship. For the Psalms give, range, uh, give vent to the entire range of human emotion and are a means by which we can learn to integrate our head and our heart and to commend ourselves and one another and all our life to Christ our God. By taking us as low as hell and sackcloth and as high as triumph and gladness, Psalm 30, our psalm this morning, 
shows us that everything in between is fair game to be expressed before God. Sometimes we come across a psalm like this. Uh, oh, let me backtrack here. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, Psalm 30 shows us that everything in between uh, is in, able to be entrusted before God, that nothing is off limits in the life of prayer. Now, sometimes we come across a psalm like this one, which invokes our enemies. Right in this psalm, David says, I will magnify thee, O Lord, for thou hast set me up, and not made my foes to triumph over me. So David is acknowledging before God that he has foes. And in other psalms, he prays against them quite violently. So when we come across such verses, we're often at a loss about who we're referring to here. Like David, he's got enemies aplenty. There's, there's Saul and Absalom and Goliath. But against whom do we pray? Well, if you think about it, the people of God used to consist of a physical nation. And because of this, Israel's enemies were actual nations of flesh and blood people, like Canaanites, Perizzites, Hittites, Hivites, Amorites, Jebusites, Assyrians, Babylonians, and all these other groups that you and I probably know nothing about. And that's okay, because God's, um, the enemies of God's people uh, now are spiritual enemies. See, the Israel of God, which Paul referred to in Romans in our epistle this morning, uh, refers to us, the church, who by faith have become children of Abraham. And so our enemies look different now. As St. Paul put it, we are no longer wrestling against um, flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. So in short, the enemies that we pray against in the Psalms are the forces of sin, death, and the devil. So when we say, I will magnify thee, O Lord, for thou hast set me up, and not made my foes to triumph over me, we're rejoicing in the victory which we have in Christ over sin, death, and the devil. And so the Lord in this psalm has given us words to use in our victory. He himself has provided the sacrifice. And I wonder, the more we begin to use God's own words, to what extent our hearts and minds will be shaped by these prayers. Have you ever heard an older Christian um, pray out loud, and what you hear are the words of Scripture echoed in their prayers? This can become possible for us as we learn to give God's words back to Him, interpreting and expressing our emotions in the light of the Psalter. Christ Himself did this when, on the cross, He expressed His great agony with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Like He could have said anything, but I chose to use the well-worn words of King David in the 22nd Psalm. This brings me to my second point, that the Psalms are not our prayers only, but ultimately those of Christ. In the Psalms, God has given us words to unite us with Jesus. One of the titles of Christ in the New Testament is the Son of David. And when people call Him by this name, they acknowledge Him as the fulfillment of everything that David foreshadowed. David, the primary author of the Psalms, was the great king of Israel, just as Jesus after him would reign as our king. Now, as a devout Jew, Jesus would have prayed these Psalms as a normal part of his life, both in the temple and in the synagogue. And so, because he prayed all of them, in him they all find their fulfillment. Our Psalm this morning offers some prime examples of this. And if you take a look in your bulletin, I'll start at verse 1. Christ says to the Father, Thou hast set me up, or lifted me up. And this is an obvious um, allusion to Christ's um, resurrection, being lifted up from the dead. 
He says, and you have not made my foes to triumph over me. And the foes to which he is referring are the Jews and Romans, Judas and Satan, who all conspired together to take his life. But they had not the victory even when he died, because in his resurrection, Jesus prays in verse 3, thou hast brought my soul out of hell. Interestingly, David was able to pray this metaphorically, counting himself as good as dead because of his enemies. But what he prayed metaphorically, Christ prays literally. God actually brought his soul out of hell and actually granted him resurrection. In verse 2, Jesus refers to his healing. I think what he means here is the immortality, which is resurrection, is made possible for you and me. See, we don't have any record of Christ falling ill. But it seems that he is praying about the sickness of death, which has overtaken humanity since Adam. But now, in his rising to life again, as St. Paul puts it, this corruptible body has put on incorruptibility, and this mortal body has put on immortality. So Christ prays this verse about humanity's healing, a healing from death itself. When we get to the sufferings, which David mentions in verses 5 and verse, verse 7, we find here, too, that this psalm is even more accurate of Christ than it is of him. See, Christ can pray about God's wrath because he, unlike us, has actually experienced it. If you think about it, we've been shown mercy as God's sons and daughters and don't need to bear the brunt of God's wrath. This is what Christ did on the cross for our sakes. And when he says, Thou didst turn thy face from me, he prays concerning his own abandonment upon the cross. In verse 9, he pleads with the Father, saying, What profit is there in my blood when I go down into the pit? Jesus knows that his bloodshedding is for the life of the world, but that it will only profit us if he rises to life again. As St. Paul writes, If Christ had not been raised from the dead, our faith had been in vain. Christ experiences upon the cross the heaviness which endures for a night bearing the weight of our sins. And he bore it willingly. He was pleased to do it, enduring the cross on account of the joy which was set before him, namely a life with you, his beloved. Like Jacob, for whom 14 years seemed but as a few days in his love for Rachel, so Christ counts the cross for your sake as but a night, and the wrath of God as but the twinkling of an eye compared with the joy which cometh in the morning and God's favor, which lasts for a lifetime. So this psalm, as you can tell, is Christ's own. Third, in the psalms, God has given us words for use in our life's journey. And this psalm reminds us that joy cometh in the morning. Despite our Lord's death, God does not make his foes to triumph over him. God does not leave Christ's soul in hell. He does not leave him in trouble, but has become his helper. This psalm recounts the comeback, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. This psalm in telling of the glory of Christ's resurrection is showing us that there is an eternal life which awaits us on the other side of our death. It tells us that if we carry a cross on Friday, that there is an Easter that will come on Sunday. It reassures us that though heaviness may endure for a night, yet joy cometh in the morning. So what is the cross that you are bearing right now? Or what is the healing that you are asking God for? In, in what situation do you feel that he has turned his face from you? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy upon me, we pray. Lord, be thou my helper. With these words, we cry out to God in union with the prayer of Jesus. With these words, we ask for God to be our helper as well. And just as God did not leave Christ's soul in hell, nor let his enemies triumph over him, 
So God will turn your heaviness into joy, putting off your sackcloth and girding you with gladness. For he is making all things new. What matters, as St. Paul wrote in our epistle this morning, is a new creation. Now, I don't know what God is doing in your circumstances in this life, but I do know that every Christian's destination is the cross. This is to be expected. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus tells us. And likewise, in the Salve Regina, we complain to Mary with the words, mournful and weeping, we pass through this veil of sorrow. So sufferings are to be expected in our lives. And without sufferings, we cannot become saints because the cross is necessary if we are to truly live. As we read this past Friday in the office uh, from the book of Romans, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, Paul says, giving this caveat, if in fact we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Elsewhere, he says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. The suffering is as nothing compared to the joy that awaits us on the other side of this our exile. Crosses are ours to bear, and it's our job to bear our sufferings willingly alongside our Master and to hold fast to hope. This world is not our home, but we, like Abraham, are seeking a better country, a heavenly one. Sufferings are par for the course in this world, but we are being saved through them to an everlasting life. Therefore, in union with Christ and with David, we pray, heaviness may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Such is the song of God's people along this life's journey toward heaven. So, our psalm this morning comes to us as a real gift, for it is the offering from our God as words to give back to Him. And these words of David have not become ours only, but also the words of our Lord, towards whose resurrection this psalm is pointing. In solidarity with us, the son of David prays concerning the transformation of despondency into happiness, the exchange of sackcloth for gladness, and the journey from hell to God's pleasure, which is life. So Jesus prays alongside us as we march on toward the triumphant joy which lies for us on the other side of his cross. For though heaviness may endure for a night, joy cometh in the morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.